Now, each year, the world and the church experience uh, this season, which we refer to as Christmas. And to be sure, it is very much a conglomerated festival today, blended with aspects of paganism, commercialism, and Christianity that Western civilization, some folks say, has invented to carry them through the darkest days of winter. Now, it is not, as you may know, that we have an ordinance that the Bible prescribes or commands us to celebrate or to observe uh, Christmas, though I do think that the church is wise to recognize a time of the year when we can reflect together upon the stupendous, the unfathomable, incomprehensible accommodation of God in the sending down of His Son into this sinful, dark, benighted world to seek and to save the lost. There are providential occasions, mind you, in life when God gives us opportunities to bring before the world the uncertainties of life and the sobering reality of the judge of all the earth with whom we had to do. And in spite of claims today made to the contrary, it is a very much an old Puritan way of looking at life. When there were national events, the Puritans of the 17th century, England, would set aside days for thanksgiving, humiliation, and preaching subjects which were fitting for that occasion. For example, when King Charles II died, dissenting uh, ministers were subjected to severe and increasing opposition while there was a growing indifference to religious principles among the people. And it was in the face of such a providential occurrence that John Owen preached from that passage in Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, where Jesus answered and said to them, And do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. And also it was in the aftermath of the great plague of London during the reign of King Charles II that the Puritan Ralph Vining wrote his famous treatise, The, the Plague, The Sin, of, uh, or The Plague of Plagues, in his Discourse on Sin. And thus sees that providential occasion to bring before the minds of men the reality of, wicked, of the wickedness of sin and of the judgment of God to come. And so with respect to Christmas, we have, you and I, an occasion in the providence of God to challenge the hearts of men and women and to testify to the saving goodness of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. But beyond that, I think it's good that we be reminded periodically as Christians of the spectacular and indeed the stupendous wonder of the enfleshment of the Son of God. Now if you share anything of my sentiments, you will lament, I suppose, how little you glory in the impenetrable, the incomprehensible wonder of the coming of the Son of God into the world. We almost begin to accept it as somewhat commonplace 
in our theology. And once again, uh, this is something we as ministers who constantly traffic in holy things should take great care lest those holy things come to the place where they no longer seem particularly holy to us any longer. And uh, we begin to accept things as commonplace in our theology. But we should never do that. And I want you to think for just a moment, when did you last sing with joy unspeakable and full of glory the wonder of the eternal God taking up habitation in the womb of the Virgin Mary? Paul wrote to Timothy, as I read, for our call to worship tonight. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. What Paul is saying, try to get your mind wrapped around this great wonder, God, the eternal I am, was manifested in the flesh. And so I desire just a little to reflect with you this evening on this staggering fact that overshadows and and, uh, undergirds and that emphasizes some of these aspects of the nativity of our Lord Jesus Christ And it's that fact which we find captured in the phrase that John gives us, and the Word became flesh. Now the Apostle Paul uh, is even more daring in Romans 8 and verse 3, and our pastor is going to preach upon that passage next Lord's Day, when he speaks of God as sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Not in sinful flesh... Not in the likeness of flesh, but in the likeness of sinful flesh. The creator of the universe, who has neither beginning of days nor end of life, took to himself this human habitation and dwelt among us, says John, and we beheld his glory as of the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, to make any sense of these words, we need to begin, of course, at the beginning. And in the opening verses of this chapter, John underscores for us, you'll notice, the identity of the Word who became flesh and made His dwelling among us. There are three things in particular. John is particularly careful to impress upon us the astounding nature of this event that we might see, as it were, when we come to the 14th verse, that we are left speechless and simply bow down and worship in the face of this awesome reality. We're here on the threshold of what Calvin referred to as the unutterable mystery. So in the first place, notice he says, the Word who became flesh is eternal. In the beginning was the Word. Now, very clearly, John is self-consciously echoing the very first words of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, he says, was the Word. Look at verse 3. All things were made. He's drawing our minds back to Genesis 
And in a sense, he's saying, here's the one who brought all things into being, in the beginning. He is the eternal word. His existence, John is telling us, did not begin at Bethlehem. It did not even begin at creation. No, he says, in the beginning, the word already was. There, was ne- there never was when the word was not. There never was a moment when this word who became flesh was not. So what is John telling us? Simply this, that the word becoming flesh is, if you please, this explosion of the eternal into history. It was the intrusion of the eternal into the stream of human existence. This is the meaning of the word became flesh. It was the penetration of time and space by the eternal one. So do you see what John is saying here? He is saying, here is one who is not one of Adam's fallen race. He has become flesh, yes, but not as we are flesh. He has come into our race from the outside. And coming from the outside, he comes into our race untainted and unaffected by Adam's sin. Here's the progenitor of this new humanity. And he is unmarred by sin. Unlike us, he comes into the world free of Adamic corruption and joins us in our humanity. Now, dear people, we live in a world, you and I, that is fascinated with the supernatural. Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets and that fictional best series a while back titled Left Behind. But John holds before our eyes here the reality of biblical supernaturalism. Here is one who has neither beginning of days nor end of life, exploding into time and space, coming from the outside of our realm as the eternal alien to bring hope in the midst of our darkness. This is the lighting of a light. But then I want you to notice in the second place, not only was this word eternal, but John tells us, That he is creator. Look at verse 3. All things were made through him. This one who was in the beginning. All things were made through him. And without him nothing was made that was made. Let me, if you will, personalize these words. I read these words and I find that I read them so easily. And I was thinking when I was going over this passage and preparing to preach, David, you're reading over these words so easily. What is John saying? Well, he's telling us that the one who made the stars, who called worlds into, begin, into, into existence, this eternal one who said, let there be myriads of constellations, this one became flesh. The God who said, come into existence, Orion. Come into existence, Pleiades. And his sheer word brought them into being out of nothing. This God became flesh. And I fear sometimes that we in the church have lost a sense of the wonder of the incarnation. 
the Creator, imagine this, the Creator in a cradle, the one who upholds the universe by his mighty word, himself needing the arms of his creature, his mother, to hold him up in his frail flesh, drawing nourishment from the breast of his own creature. The eternal one nourished and maturated in the womb of the Virgin Mary. The eternal one needing to be washed and changed and fed. That's what John is telling us here. And that's why if nothing else, the note of wonder and mental humility ought to be the pulse beat of all of our thinking that surrounds the Lord Jesus Christ coming into the world. Wonder, isn't that the great note that we find struck repeatedly throughout the birth narratives of our Lord? My soul magnifies the Lord, said Mary, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Think of the shepherds when brought by the angel to the birth spot of Christ. They returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen. And I think of that collision of the unseen world of heavenly reality with our own world of time and space and the praises of the angels announcing the birth of the Christ, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men, announcing it to shepherds, no less, men who were so low on the social scale of that day that their testimony in the court of law was not even accepted as credible because they so often confused the distinction between mine and thine. And yet it's this note of wonder that permeates everything connected with the nativity of our Lord. That's why doxology, praise, and adoration is the great note that unifies the response of angels and men and women. Doxology, praise, adoration. This is the first great note of true Christianity. Now, there are many notes sounded today that we defend the faith, that we proclaim the faith, but we must first of all glory in the God of our faith. And the great focus is outward and upward. We live, you and I, such introspective and and self-contemplating age. We are profoundly subjective in our views. And there is a true subjectivity, a godly subjectivity. But the Christian faith is not in the first place, mind you, occupied with me and mine and thine. It is occupied with God and His glory and the mighty acts of God in time and space. And this is so that our subjectivity, that is our experiences, are rooted in divine objectivity. That is in what God has revealed in His Word. Behold your God. Behold Him and all the glory that He has revealed Himself in the Bible to be. But then thirdly, and most staggering of all, John says that this Word, this Word who was in the beginning, 
and who was the creator of all things is none other than God himself. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God. Now this is a very interesting construction in the original language. He was face to face with God. He gazed in an unhindered aspect on the glory of God. He was with God. And John goes on to say, and the Word was God. The Word who became flesh, who was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, was none other than the one identified in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6 as mighty God, El Gabor, Emmanuel, God with us. And this is why in that remarkable narrative that we find in the second chapter of Matthew's gospel, where you're almost asking the evangelist, tell me more. Tell me more about this birth. How, why, where, when. And that while reading and noting the simplicity of the narrative with these strangers coming from the east, And what do they do when they arrive? We're told that they simply bow down and begin to worship this infant in a manger. They worship at the feet of a baby who has just emerged from the womb of a common Palestinian maiden. And John is telling us, take this in. Take this breathtaking event in. Try to get your mind and your heart wrapped around what is taking place here. It is God become flesh. It is who became flesh, enjoys every single divine prerogative, and especially he enjoys the prerogative of worship. And that's why you see the church is not first and foremost this or that an evangelistic preaching community. Nor is the church first and foremost a sacramental community. But the church is first and foremost a worshiping community. It is a people of hallelujahs and hosannas. Now we are many other things Thanks be to God for that. We are many other things. But before anything else, we are a people of hallelujahs and hosannas. Praise to God. Remember the words of the Apostle Peter, but you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You are a holy nation. He goes on to say his own special people. And in the Old Testament, that word is special people is one word. It's the word skula. It's a term of endearment that God uses of his people. That's why we delight to sing, who is he in yonder stall? At whose feet the shepherds fall? Tis the Lord, O wondrous story. Tis the Lord, the King of glory. At his feet we humbly fall. Crown him, crown him, Lord of all. That's the response of a believing heart. And it's precisely here you'll notice that we encounter in all of its unembarrassed supernaturalism, the great foundational doctrine of the Trinity, of our triune God. He was with God, and yet He was God. He is not God Jr. 
if I may put it like that. He is, and let me use this word and explain it, he is autotheos. He is God in himself. He is God in himself, with the Father and with the Spirit, one God eternal. He is unreservedly God, not the Father in another guise or name. He was with God and he was God. And this is the climax of that first truth hinted in the very first chapter of the Bible. Let us make man in our image. Can you imagine God's people throughout the ages saying to themselves, what does that mean? It is the plural majesty, baloney. It is the plural divinity. It is divine plurality. Three persons in one being and one being in three persons. He was with God and he was God. And that's what makes sense of everything else that John writes in his gospel. Can you imagine Jesus' disciples, the small dawning reality coming upon them when he says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. He calms the winds and the waves as we hear about in the messages on the Gospel of Mark. This alone makes sense of everything that follows. He says what he says and does what he does as God incarnate, as God come in the flesh. At his feet we humbly fall. Crown him, crown him, Lord of all. Is Jesus crowned in your life this morning? Not that he needs your crowning him. But you need him as crowned in your life. And he bids you come to himself. The wondrous thing of the gospel. The most wondrous thing of the gospel. Is not that Jesus Christ offers us eternal life. Though that is something he does offer. But the glory of the gospel is that Christ offers us himself. He offers us himself and all the glory of who he is as God in flesh and all the beauty of his person and work on behalf of sinners. But why is he called the word? You'll notice that John does not begin by saying, In the beginning was the Son, and the Son was with God, and the Son was God. He was with God in the beginning, and the Son became flesh. That's not the way John writes. For we know he's speaking of the Son, according to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Why is he called the Word? Well, there's much that we could say, but verse 18 of our chapter clarifies and interprets precisely what John is saying. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, or some manuscripts read God, who is in the bosom of the Father. He has declared Him. He has exegeted Him. He has explained Him. My words express who I am. If I speak truly, my words reflect my mind, my heart, my will, my being. He is called the Word because He is the perfect self-expression of God. 
He is the revelation of all that God is. In Him we see you and I, the true and living God. That's why Jesus could say to Philip, He who has seen me has seen the Father. And if someone should ask, what is God like? We can point them to the Lord Jesus Christ and say, There, He is who and He is what God is like. Think of the opening words of Hebrews. God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by His Son. The Lord Jesus Christ is the divine goodness. He is the incarnation of God's grace and covenant love to us poor sinners. He is the incarnation of God's truth. And in Him, the shadows disappear. The ceremonies are obliterated, to use the language of Hebrews 8 and 9. And in Him, we see that divine goodness has come to be merciful to judgment-deserving sinners. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. The divine love is the great principal cause of the incarnation. Let me quote John as I close tonight. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it or comprehend it. It's difficult to translate that word. It's difficult to know how to translate it. The darkness cannot fathom the light. Jesus Christ, you see, he is a puzzle. He is an enigma. He is a perplexity to the world. He is an insoluble riddle to the darkness. But this is not the last word, is it? And if it were the last word, we would all despair. But he goes on to say, And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. He came into the world, and the world did not know him. But that's not the last word. You know those marvelous words of Second Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God penetrates the darkness by His grace and His mercy. And He causes His light to shine in our hearts and to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of His Son, the Lord Jesus. And then, once that's done, He is no longer to us the insoluble riddle. But He is the Almighty Savior before whom we bow down in worship because He loved us and gave Himself for us. But as many as received Him, John says, to them He gave the right, that is, He gave the authority to become the children of God to those who believe in his name and the word became flesh says John now these are unfathomable words as I've already said we we look at these words and we just scratch the surface don't we it's like dipping your toe 
into the ocean, but by the grace of God. It's not the dipping of our toes intellectually that matters in the end, but it is the experiential opening of our hearts wherein God has provided a place far more significant and momentous than that withheld from him by the world. For to him we give our unrivaled adoration and our love. We gaze with unshielded sight upon the majestic glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. John says we beheld his glory. And he beholds it even more at this moment as that unshielded glory is radiated in the face of Jesus Christ, the God-man. And the Word became flesh. And why? That He might save His people from their sins. Can you begin to imagine? Can you begin to imagine heaven contemplating the incarnation. Can you imagine the unfallen angels if we're allowed to imagine such things looking at one another and trying to fathom what cannot be fathomed that the one who upheld the universe by the sheer word of his power was himself being upheld in the womb of a lowly virgin maiden. Even while he was upheld in the womb of a virgin, he himself was upholding the universe by the word of his power. That, dear people, is a truth that staggers the imagination. You say, David, that takes me out of my depths. It it takes me out of my capacity. Then all I can say is join the ranks of us all as we look at a passage like this. In fact, becoming a Christian defies all human explanation. Why? Because in love beyond understanding, God has seen fit in grace and mercy to do such a thing for the likes of you and me. And though we may be bereft of any human explanation, clothed with mental humility and a heart that glories in Jesus Christ, We simply fall down before him and sing all this for us thy love hath done. By this to thee our love is won. For this we tune our cheerful lays and shout our thanks in ceaseless praise. Let us pray, dear people.